Are you a Christian who finds yourself struggling with the same sin over and over again? Do you feel like your life doesn't seem to reflect the resurrection you know to be true? Have you tried dozens of books and techniques only to find yourself discouraged and ready to give up? Well, we've got good news for you. Questions like these inspired our journey into the rich biblical truths we call New Heart Theology. And we believe if you join us in this journey, we'll learn together, we'll wrestle together, and we'll strive together unto godliness. Welcome to another episode of the New Heart Theology Podcast. My name is Kevin Lehman, and I'm a certified biblical counselor and am currently doing graduate work that focuses on how the Apostle Paul's anthropology and metaphysics affects our understanding on the Christian's battle against sin. The NHT podcast reflects my journey and my findings over the years, along with major contributions from friends and co-laborers along the way. I am typically joined by my co-host, Grant Forster, but today I am flying solo. Grant has some important items he's taken care of with his graduate work in apologetics, and so he has taken the week off. Lord willing, he will be rejoining us two episodes from now. I teased last week that this episode is where things are really going to get interesting. Up until now, most of what we have said is universally accepted in most Reformed theological disciplines. But today, you're going to get to see how we are delineating a bit or differentiating a bit from mainstream counseling and discipleship theology. Now, before we go any further, I want to take just a moment and address our skeptics. First of all, we love you, and we're glad you're here. I genuinely mean that. This theology was built on well-meaning brothers and sisters challenging us with good questions, so we love the questions. I would encourage you to please stay through the entire episode and try to consider the passages and their applications with an open mind. I would also encourage you to hang out for the episode on the fourth point, which should release next week. That's our sanctification episode, and that's the application of this theology. And I think it would be helpful in seeing precisely how all of this makes sense. My prayer for you is that you will genuinely wrestle with your presuppositions as we did when first discovering NHT. So, just as we did with the myopic soul and the corrupted body, the next two episodes will cover in two parts our third point, which is the complete regeneration and indwelling of the soul. We put these two separate events together in one point because they are two sides of the same coin. Two separate events to be sure, but they happen almost simultaneously. Today, we want to discuss the first part of the third point, the complete regeneration of the soul. But before we dive into the primary discussion, I want to explore two things you may have heard or been taught leading up to this point. First, you may have heard it said that the heart is deceitfully wicked and cannot be trusted. Most people who teach this will cite Jeremiah 17, 9, which says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Well, if the Bible says it, it must be true, right? Perhaps, but we have to be really careful when we deal with places in Scripture where it's translated into English as heart. Heart can mean a whole host of different things depending on context and where God's people are at in progressive revelation. In other words, Paul had a much more expansive understanding of metaphysics than Old Testament prophets did, so naturally you would expect them to talk about the inner workings of a person differently. The Old Testament Jews said heart, where Paul speaks more expansively about the body and spirit, the material and the immaterial. 
And also, in the places such as Jeremiah 17.9, you have to consider who the passage is talking to and, and who it's about. We will eventually do an entire episode on Jeremiah 17.9, but for now it might interest you to know that it wasn't written about regenerate Old Testament saints, and it certainly wasn't written about regenerate and indwelled New Testament believers. So can we really trust that passage to give us accurate information about the saved soul? I mean, of course it identifies the lost soul because that's who it is written about, and that would go perfectly with the myopic state of the pre-regenerate soul discussed a couple of episodes ago. But we can't take that passage and say, see, look, everyone's heart is wicked. It's not fair to the context of the passage. The other question is, what is even meant by heart? When someone says heart in scripture, are they referencing the soul? In the Old Testament, probably not on most occasions. Because of their holistic view of man, most of the time, they're simply referring to everything going on inside of a person, the entire inner workings of man. But we know now from Paul's anthropology and metaphysics that what's going on inside of a man can be both material and immaterial, both body and soul, both brain and rational intellect. It's a mixture of, of both. The point being, just because we see the word heart in Scripture doesn't mean we should always jump to make it about the soul. Sometimes it indeed is, but other times it's serving a much broader literary purpose. And that's why context is so important. In this episode, when I use the term heart, unless otherwise indicated, assume I am speaking of the soul. I'm using it this way because that's the way I believe it's used in Ezekiel 36, and that passage is the backbone of the content we're exploring here. Another thing you may have heard is that your heart can harbor or even create and manufacture idols. They'll reference Ezekiel 14, 1 through 11, where false prophets and fallen Israeli leadership, it says, has taken idols into their hearts. Again, this passage absolutely is not talking about Old Testament saints, nor is it talking about New Testament believers. There isn't anything in this passage that should lead us to that interpretation. In fact, the passage is quite specific that the men harboring these idols were evil men. And if that weren't enough, the idols talked about here were actual physical idols that they had left behind but carried on the worship of them in their inner beings. They weren't intangible spiritual idols. Idolatry in Scripture, except maybe in one place, yes, covetousness, and we'll address it when we get there, is always talking about physical idols. When Scripture talks about idolatry except in one place, it is always talking about physical idols. Adding the spiritual element to idolatry has only become prevalent in the last few centuries and especially in the last couple of decades. So, in summary, some will say the heart is wicked, and the heart produces idols. We do not believe either of these two things are true for the believer. And not only do we not believe they are true, we believe teaching well-meaning philosophies like this can be harmful to every Christian discipline, first and foremost, counseling and discipleship. Beloved, I'm going to make a case to you in this episode that the new heart God gives to believers is no longer wicked and can no longer come under the control of idols, physical or spiritual. This won't be an exhaustive argument. It will take time and many episodes to build that. But I hope this will serve as a helpful introduction to New Heart Theology's view of regeneration. So buckle up, and I pray you enjoy the ride. 
One of the first things we need to figure out in an episode about regeneration is what do we mean by regeneration? This may sound obvious, but not everyone says the same thing about regeneration. First, we teach that regeneration is something that happens to the soul, which we believe is the entire immaterial person. So regeneration affects the soul, but has no effect on the body. We teach that there are essentially four facets of regeneration, a rebirth, a resurrection, a cleansing, and becoming a new creation. This idea is based loosely on MacArthur and Mayhew's stance in their systematic theology reference book. Now, all these facets overlap, so it's difficult to talk about one without talking about the others, but I'll give it a shot. The Greek word palinasia, translated regeneration, used only twice in scripture, literally means born again. We also see this concept in 1 Peter 1.3, where it says he has caused us to be born again. And Jesus, of course, told Nicodemus he must be born again. And as MacArthur points out, John, in his first epistle, writes about the believer being born of God six different times. Being born again simply means that you are no longer born under the curse, but under the blessing of salvation in Christ. You have a new life, free from its past, though not always free from its earthly consequences. The regeneration process is also a resurrection. We talked a bit about this on the myopic soul episode. One of my favorite passages in scripture is found in Romans 6.13. Paul writes, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Regeneration brings a dead soul to life. Regeneration takes a soul that was once unable to respond to spiritual stimulus and makes it instantly able to house the glory of God. And if that weren't enough, Scripture says that the regeneration process is a cleansing process or a purifying process of the soul. Titus 3, 4 through 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of of regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We see washing used again in 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Peter also teaches this. He says in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's an interesting one. In Ezekiel, the same book, same author, same context of the Ezekiel 14 passage on idols of the heart, God says just a few chapters later, as part of the regeneration process, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
Now, if you're going to try to tell me that the regenerate heart or the regenerate soul is susceptible to idols, you're going to have a really hard time explaining this verse because this crucial verse literally says the regenerate heart will be cleansed of its idols. And it's the exact same context as the passage dealing with the idols in the hearts of the corrupted Israeli elders. It is mind-boggling to me that passages like this are not factored in when considering idols of the heart theology. And we can stay right here in Ezekiel to cover our fourth and last facet of regeneration, the new creation. Look at what God says immediately following in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is important because it shows the completely new nature of the saved soul. This isn't God just putting makeup on something grotesque. This isn't a duct tape fix. This is a complete replacement of something old and dead with something new and alive. And of course, many of you are probably familiar with the New Testament reinforcement of the Ezekiel passage found in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the old is gone, vanished. As far as the immaterial person goes, whatever we were before Christ no longer exists in any form or any fashion. This means that any teaching that attributes old nature practices to the newly regenerated soul is in error. A soul that has been reborn, resurrected, cleansed, made new, and indwelled by God's Spirit, as we'll see in the next episode, simply cannot continue to produce sinful desire. This is why we made it clear from Scripture in the previous episode that sinful desire for the believer clearly originates in the body. Okay, I think that will suffice for an introduction to regeneration. Now, on to the questions that get to the heart of New Heart Theology. Here they are. To what degree is the soul regenerated? Is it completely reborn? Is it completely cleansed? Or do these things only happen partially or progressively? I want to make a case to you for complete regeneration, and then I want to talk about the implications of that. Since we're already in Ezekiel 36, let's start there. Verse 25 says that at regeneration or at salvation, God will cleanse us and he will cleanse us of all of our idols. There's no indication in this passage that this is anything but a full cleansing. There's also no indication that this cleansing could be undone at any time. The cleansing process is a one-time event that has permanent effects that go on forever. Verse 26 says that he will remove our heart of stone and give us a new heart of flesh. Again, the language here is stunning. There's no indication in the text that this is anything other than a full transplant of something new and alive for something old and dead. In no way should we understand this change to be partial or something that must take place over an extended period of time. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all the rule and authority. God's work at salvation was completed. There is nothing else left for him to do to our immaterial souls. 
John MacArthur in his sermon on this passage says, I believe people, it's a new nature, all brand new. I don't believe when you become a Christian, you get kind of whitewashed. I believe you get a brand new inside at the very moment you believe. He goes on to say in his sermon on the believer's battle with sin, the Christian then in that new person in the essential new eternal life, which has been granted to us, is holy and righteous and fit from heaven. That's huge, by the way. The soul at salvation is fit for heaven, he continues on. And it's important for us to understand that because that's the truest and purest understanding of who we are. There's really no virtue in going around thinking that you are the same person you used to be and living in some kind of woe-be-gone condition because you think that is the case. The fact is that now, for the first time, righteousness, which was alien to your nature, is now normal to your nature, and sin is alien. I did tell you in the first episode that this stuff isn't new. People have been saying it for decades, just not so much in relation to counseling and discipleship as we are doing it here. So God's work in us at salvation is a complete work. Peter says in his second epistle, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Guess what all things means here? Yeah, all things, not half the things, not part of the things, all things. Everything we need to live a godly life has already been given to us, and it's been granted to us by divine power. Guys, and I do include my dear sisters in that designation, that divine power is the spirit that transforms the soul. We don't have to cultivate our souls or purge them of idols before we can have a right heart towards God. From the moment we are saved, our heart is right toward God but it's our flesh that gets in the way. This is full regeneration, not partial regeneration. Now, to be fair, no one is probably going to call themselves partial regenerationists. That doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But any teaching that says it will take a lifetime of sanctification, and I use that term loosely because I don't like the way popular counseling culture defines it, but any teaching that says it will take a lifetime of sanctification before our souls have been fully cleansed, fully resurrected, fully reborn, and fully new is, by definition, teaching a partial regeneration. They are teaching that the very things regeneration accomplishes in the believer have not fully been accomplished. Consider this, why would God have the capacity to give us everything we need to battle sin, only to have us spend a lifetime of failure against sin, but then finally give it to us fully at death when we no longer need it to battle sin? It would be like giving a software engineer only half a keyboard to use for their entire career, only then giving them the other half as a retirement gift at the end of his career. This would be counterintuitive to precisely what God wants us to accomplish in this life, to put his greatness on display. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone completely, and the new nature has arrived completely. If we're right, and I believe we are, then the redeemed soul is no longer sinful. This means the believer's heart is not wicked. This means the believer's heart does not have idols. And it definitely means the believer's heart doesn't manufacture idols. 
lest we assign the origin of our idolatry to the place God has cleansed and indwelt. The divine nature doesn't manufacture idols. Of course, we still sin because despite our new souls, we still have corrupted bodies, and we'll talk about this dynamic when we get to point four, but our soul has been made completely new. Nothing has been left undone. This is why Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think Paul genuinely believed that if he could just be free from his body, he would sin no more. And this is why at the resurrection, what do we get a new of? Yes, we receive a new body because of the work on our soul. The immaterial part of us has already been completed. Now, I realize, depending on your presuppositions, I may have just churned up more questions than answers. And I believe that's a good thing. I want you questioning what you may have been taking for granted up to this point. I promise answers are coming. It's just too much to fit in one episode. We have to develop this over time. And we'll continue this journey in the next episode. Now that we know God cleanses us, it's important to know that he also seals us through the indwelling of the Spirit. Please make sure to catch the conclusion to point three next week. Also, please remember the ways you can support us. We love five-star reviews, honest five-star reviews anyway, if you're enjoying the content. Subscriptions always help, but most of all, if you want to help support the show, please tell a friend about us. As always, if you have questions or comments, please DM me at Kevin Lehman on Instagram or Twitter. And hey, if you haven't experienced the regeneration I talked about in this episode, you will only find it in Christ. He's the only one with the power and means to cleanse a soul. If you want to know what that cleansing feels like, reach out to me or to a pastor in your city. And if you don't know of a good church in your area to reach out to, hit us up. We can help you find one. Thanks for listening, and God bless.